Well, church, if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Matthew chapter 6, and Psalm 73 is where we'll be today. Let me just a few introductory things as we kind of jump in today. Um, As a church, we keep pressing in on this uh, two services, and, you know, it's a small group here. But know that when we do the math, we're about 65 or so in-house for both services, And so what ends up happening is we can't just do one. Uh, We're over that 50 mark. And so we're doing two. But in our minds, at least for Rich and I, we want to leave some room for some growth too, more people to come, open doors, that type of thing. And so we're doing that. And uh, part of that is we do this series, you know, as we're living in these difficult times, uh, I, I feel sometimes this kind of pressure, especially when it comes to the sermon, because we're not doing all these other things, um, you know, just the normal rhythms of our church and, you know, people in the first service, there's a lot of people still watching online, which is great. And maybe they don't collect, connect as much with the music, you know, and that distance thing. And so I feel a lot of pressure. And then I was reading in our devotions this week where Paul says, you know, um, God causes it to grow. These people may water, but God causes it to grow. And I'm just reminded, Dave, all you're doing is watering, watering the, the saints here. You know, it's not your job to make them grow. And we live in Oregon where we only really only have to water, you know, three months out of the year. So it's not even that important, right? So um, I feel the pressure in that, but there's something about the rhythms of reading God's word and praying on a regular basis, uh, meditating, studying, fellowshipping when we can, that, that just keeps us going uh, during these times. And so here we are, we've been doing this series on the Lord's Prayer. And, and the purpose behind that is for us to grow in our ability to communicate with God. And so um, we're finishing up this week, which is really kind of funny uh, side story um, we actually had one more series in this sermon series. I added in the, in the key, old King James Version, right? It says, and thine is the kingdom forever and ever, amen. And that's not in the ESV, which is probably because it wasn't in the earlier manuscripts. It was in the later manuscripts. It may have been added by the early church as part of the liturgy. Nothing wrong with praying that. I was gonna do a sermon on it. But then last week said this, you know, next week will be the last in the series. We put that in the email and all this stuff, which we don't normally communicate this stuff. And then I'm sitting in my office on Thursday going, oh, wait, I actually have one more sermon in this series. Why did we communicate that? And so I said, you know, we kind of have a free Sunday here. So Rod is going to preach next week, Lord willing. And so we're excited about that. And so we are ending this week, but this idea of this is just kind of the rhythm in prayer. And I will say this, this This is a regular part of my prayer life. Almost daily, I'll pray through the Lord's Prayer. But hallowed be your name. God, your your name be lifted up in our church, in our community. We want to see the name of Jesus honored. That your kingdom come. God, I'm looking forward to that day when your kingdom comes. But until then, God, may, may your kingdom principles be true in my life and the life of the church so people see Jesus Christ in our community. God, you will, your will be done. God, I know that, that you are sovereign, but God, I, want to, I know it's your will to see people get saved and we want to see people get saved. I know it's your will for God 
people to be changed. And I want, I want to see people changed. God, I know it's your will for people to grow closer to Jesus. And so I pray that. God, we pray for your provisions for our church, for our community. We pray for provisions for those who are struggling physically and spiritually. God, we, we I, I pray confession, not just for myself, but for us as a church, Lord, where we have failed you. And God, we, we pray that you would protect us. We pray that you would lead us in the right way, that your, your will, that your glory would be seen. And so I pray through that. And so we're ending today with this idea of um, lead us not into temptation. Uh, I learned something this week on Twitter, which is the first time I've ever learned something on Twitter. Uh, but somebody posted this and I went and researched it, found out it was true. Uh, graham crackers. You're familiar with graham crackers? Uh, the graham cracker was inspired by the preaching of Sylvester Graham, who was part of the 19th century temperance movement. And he believed that minimizing pleasure and stimulation of all kinds, coupled with a vegetarian diet, anchored by bread made from wheat, coarsely ground at home, was how God intended people to live. And that following that natural law would keep people healthy. His preaching was taken widely in the midst of the 1829 through 51 uh, cholera pandemic, another pandemic, and his followers were called Gramanites. And uh, the Gram bread, um, uh, the Gramanites had formed this vegetarian movement in America. Gram flour, Gram crackers, and Gram bread were created for them. Gram, he didn't profit from this, he didn't get anything from this. Um, but specifically, Gram believed that an unhealthy diet led to uh, wrong desires physically. And so, parents, follow me here. Uh, the graham crackers were supposed to keep you from certain temptations, which makes me look at graham crackers really a lot differently and wonder whether we should be putting them in the nursery. But that was the purpose of graham crackers, okay? And so um, I think there's a better way that we can not be led in temptation than, than eating graham crackers. So uh, we're looking at this, lead us not into temptation, okay, which... Uh, is in itself uh, kind of a, a problem question there. Does God lead us? And then um, we, we follow that up with some discussions from last week about uh, forgive us our debts as we are forgiven. And we talked about is that conditional or not conditional? And I want to just point you to verse six, or excuse me, verse uh, eight in chapter six. Do not be like them. Remember, he's talking about the Gentiles. Uh, who Babylon, he says, your father knows what you need before you ask. When you pray, give us this day our bread, does God know what bread you need? Yes. When you say, forgive us our sins, does God know what sins you've committed? Yes. And so when we say, lead us not, does God know where we're headed? Yes. And so part of that, when when we pray that, it's not just asking for divine intervention, which we are, but it's also our part of acknowledging our part of it. And so when we pray, when we pray, uh, forgive us our debts, we, we're, we're healed you know, with God here, and then we're reminded of where we need to deal with problems with other relationships. Okay, so we just keep that part in mind. So as we're going through uh, the lead us not in temptation, the question comes up. Does God tempt us? James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. 
So does God tempt us? No. But in the same time, this is a prayer for protection from the spiritual battle that we face. We are reminded that just a few chapters before this, that the the scripture writes that Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. So there's a fine line there where God's leading and Satan is tempting. But it's a prayer for protection. Note also that again, we start with this idea of daily Give us this day our daily bread. Daily we're praying for forgiveness and daily we're praying for protection. So why why this prayer for protection? Um, First of all, it's a prayer of of watchfulness. We recognize the spiritual battle. So Christian, think about it for a minute. Those of you who've walked with Jesus for a while, you, you pray, God, forgive me. You, you come and be vulnerable before God, praying for forgiveness, and you think through the other parts of relationships that are broken around you, and you're, you're striving to forgive there as well. And you're in this state of, of just goodness before God, just being in God's grace. What comes next? Temptation. I mean, you're in a good place. And so what, what this verse is teaching is like when you're in that place, keep your eyes open, lead us not into, keep looking for what's coming next. It's a state of watchfulness. It's also a state of dependence. It's recognition that I can't do it on my own, that, that we need that spirit-filledness to resist temptation. It's an invitation for God to walk with us, for us to follow him. And in that dependence, it's it's a prayer of humility. It's, It's recognizing that I need help in this. So does God tempt us? No, this is a prayer for protection. It's a prayer for watchfulness and dependence and humility. So why is it necessary? Because the spiritual battle is real. What Paul says in Ephesians chapter six is that our actual struggle is not against our own flesh and blood or against the people that are around us. That our our real struggle that we have is that there is a cosmic battle going on that you and I can't see. And just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not going on. And that's an intense battle. And so Paul says, our, our battle isn't against flesh and blood, but it's against this, this whole other realm of things that's going on. And so the reason that we pray, lead us not in temptation, is because there's a battle going on that we can't see. Now, the other thing is that temptation, listen, let's just state this for a second. Temptation in, of, in and of itself is not sin. And I think we get confused with that sometimes. Look, temptation is not, to be tempted is not sin. Okay, we, we can put it this way, just in basic terms. Okay, it's 11 o'clock at night and you, you, you see the ice cream. Okay, there's the temptation. But if you don't eat the ice cream, it's not sin. Just because you, you want to doesn't make it sin. Now, 
I'm not saying you can't eat ice cream at 11 o'clock. That's between you and God. But you get my point, right? Okay, so there's a temptation there. But unless you give into it, that's where the sin enters in. And so why does God say, lead us not in temptation? Temptation can lead to sin. And sin leads to being ineffective. Look, when you're in that place where you've gone before God and you've poured out your heart before him and confessed your sin, you're washed in the blood of the lamb, you've worked on your relationships with those around you, Satan looks at you and goes, that person is dangerous. That person is spirit-filled and on the loose. I need to slow that person down. And Satan will do whatever he can to trip you up and make you ineffective. Why? Because when we sin, you and I tend to, to be quiet. And we tend to hide because of shame. And that's exactly where Satan wants you. Ineffective, quiet, alone. And so daily we pray for God's protection from the temptations that we'll face. And listen, if we're honest, when we pray and we, we have that moment and that time of forgiveness and our relationship with God is, is A-okay and our relationship with others, we're working on that, that temptation is going to come. And it's not in hours or days, it's in moments. Satan attacks. And so this prayer is so necessary. So how do we pray? Let's turn to Psalm 73. This is our sample prayer for this morning. I love this psalm. Uh, Maybe not the best choice for a psalm of this is how we pray for protection. What this is, this psalm, is a testimony of somebody who was tempted and began to sin, go down the wrong road, He's then, he then realizes it, he's convicted, he repents, and in that repentance, he shares how, how we can also be protected from temptation. And so we learn something from it. It's written by a choir teacher, a choir leader in the temple. David assigned uh, this person to be the, the head of the choir, uh, the head of the singers and all that kind of stuff in Jerusalem. And uh, we don't know if this is directly him or one of his ancestors, but it's a leader. It's a leader in the temple, okay? Uh, Love this psalm, great story. Uh, Follow it along uh, with me in Psalm 73. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled my steps had nearly slipped. Here's his, here's his confession. I was, I was on a down, downhill spiral. How come? Verse three. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Here is the choir director in the church of God saying, man, when I looked out at the wicked, they were doing pretty good for themselves. So he goes on and he says, for they, he gives a description of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Uh, those two seem to be contrary, but in, 
in uh, those times, you know, if you were rich, you were bigger. And so he's kind of comparing their, their, they are, they are, they're big and they're, they're strong and they're, they're in good shape, okay? Verse five, they are, they are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as garments. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Lofty, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens. Their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there any knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches, all in vain. Here's his conclusion. All in vain have I kept a clean heart and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have been betrayed. I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Verse 16, but... But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a weary, wearisome task. I, how do I explain this, God? I, how do, I don't understand this. Verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Now, you, you just have to picture, what would he have seen in the sanctuary of God? He was the choir director. It wasn't the music that overwhelmed him. He would have seen sacrifice. He would have seen bloodshed. And when he saw that, he said, until I walked in the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. Oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them. Verse 21, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in the heart, when I was convicted, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterwards you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to me, dear God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of your works. This is just a great psalm. Um, we don't have time to go in depth in all the parts of it, but I want to just give you an overview of this psalm. And it starts off by stating in verse one that God is good. And uh, just a little side note, uh, Pastor Rich and I, as we've been planning the year, uh, our plan before all this stuff happened was that we were going to have a conference in the fall, late September, early October, which is where we usually have our elders retreat or our leadership retreat. And we were going to have a conference open to everyone on the, on the goodness of God. That was our topic. And uh, as this thing's kind of, all this stuff came and kind of went on the back burner. And I just said to Rich, 
last few weeks, I said, I really feel like I'm still, we're still called to do this. So we just need to learn to package it in a different way. We're going to do some, some sort of online conference that people can do in small groups or in their homes individually or as groups. And it's all on this series on God's goodness. So here we are finishing up this series. I'm getting ready for Galatians. I'm trying to get ready for this goodness of God conference. And so I was studying on this this week and listening to another sermon uh, on the goodness of God. And then I go, I got to get going on the sermon this week. And then here it is, truly God is good. And I'm like, okay, so here's a little introduction to the goodness of God series. Here's what happens when we doubt the truth that God is good. Here's what happens when we put that truth uh, in the back burner. First of all, we begin to take credit for what God has done. When we forget about God's goodness, we start taking credit for the things that are happening around us. And in our culture, we really praise the self-made man. But what's the problem with the self-made man is his God is his self. But he says, but I built this business with my own two hands. Who gave you those hands? I designed the vision for this company like nobody else. Who gave you your mind? I built this company in the free enterprise. Who allowed you to be born in the free enterprise? You see, everything you have, God gave it to you. And when we start to take credit for that, we doubt God's goodness and we put ourselves in his place. And when we start taking credit for what God has done, in fact, we see this in this Psalm. Uh, he says, for I was envious of the arrogant, right? That, that's who they are. In verse eight, he says, they scoff and speak with malice. They, they are seeing themselves as being, in fact, in verse 10, and there's kind of some translation issues here, but therefore the people turn back to them. Who are we talking about? We start to see that God's people are starting to look at the rich and go, hey, they have it pretty good. Maybe we should listen to them. And so we take credit for things that God has done. And then second, we stop asking God for help. When we make ourselves our own God, we don't ask God for help anymore. In verses nine and 10, again, they're, they're asking other people for help. And when we do that, we stop seeking God in the difficult times. So in the small things, and then in the big things. And what happens for these type of people is they become pessimistic about the future. And so in 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 the psalm, in verse 13, he looks at himself and he says, why am I doing all this stuff? He says, for all day long, I've been stricken, uh, been stricken and rebuked every morning. Is that true? Probably not. That's how he feels. Because he's got a, just a bad view of following Jesus. In verses 2 through 10, he gives us a description of the wicked. And we don't have time to go into all of these. I'll just kind of go through them. You can look back at them later. But uh, the wicked are prosperous. Not all wicked people. Uh, uh, not all prosperous people are wicked. But this is a description. This is how he sees these wicked people. They are healthy and strong. Okay. Those, those uh, fat and sleek. The NIV, easier. Their bodies are healthier and strong. They are at ease in verse 5. And then in verse 6, just look at that one with me. This one just kind of stands out to me. It says, Therefore, pride is their necklace and violence covers them as a garment. We're, we're in Hebrew poetry here. And in Hebrew poetry, the first line and the second line relate in one way or the other. 
Sometimes they're contrasted, sometimes they're repeated, sometimes they build on one another. And here, they seem to build, and he says, pride is their necklace, and then their garment, what's covering their whole body, is violence. And I thought that was kind of an interesting description here. And, um, and so I want to just kind of dig into this just a little bit, just for a second. Um, some of you may not know this, but my undergraduate work was uh, history. I was a history major. Um, at the time, I was a youth pastor at a church, and the, the other youth pastor was having a total burnout. And I said, what would I do if I wasn't being a, a pastor? And I thought I'd be like a high school uh, history teacher. That was, that was something I was kind of pursuing, side gig, maybe if God didn't, you know, let me be a pastor or whatever. And so I was studying history, and my senior year in college, my, my emphasis was, um, just by, by way it, it fell, was World War I. All that to say this, in the media and in all sorts of publications right now, both the right and left keep referring to Hitler. This is, this is how Hitler did it. It doesn't matter which side of the aisle you're on, people are saying, this is what Hitler did. What people forget is that World War II followed something in history called World War I, and the two were related. And in World War I, Germany, in 1919 and 1921, there was a couple different uh, uh, treaties, and they were made first of all, to sign something that said that they were 100% responsible for everything that happened in World War I. It was their fault. And second, they had to pay for the war for everybody. It was one, now think about this, 1919, 1921, $132 billion in gold. They weren't taking cash. In fact, Germany just paid that, just recently paid that back. It took them 92 years. You can do the math. It was 2000 something when they paid it back. They paid back World War I. 92, uh, 100, excuse me, $132 billion. Uh, their infrastructure was destroyed. 15% of all males in Germany were gone because of the war, um, dead. And um, they were in a really low place. When Hitler came in, he, what his strength was, if you can say it that way, was trying to infuse in the German people national and ethnic pride. And to a people who were oppressed, that was music to their ears. And so here it is in the Bible. Verse six, pride is their necklace. Where does pride lead us? To violence. When you think you're above everybody, you will oppress others. It's right there in the Bible. You don't even have to refer to Hitler. Verse seven, they have plenty. Uh, verse eight, they push oppression. And then uh, verse nine, they, are, they think they're un indestructible. I think the NIV says it this way, their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. They just think they're gods. In verses 11 and 12, he has a summary. And basically he says, People are, turning, uh, people are turning to them instead of God. And then verse 12, and they were always at ease and prosperous. That's his summary. And it leads to some wrong conclusions. And he says, as he looks at all this, he says, surely I've kept my heart pure and vain. 
I have, I have washed my hands in innocence all day long. I've been plagued. I have been punished every morning. Does this sound like God is good? No, he, he, he's starting to look at this end result and say, this, this must not be God's goodness. Now, fortunately, he comes to a turning point. And the turning point is in verse 16. And he says, but, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary. What does he see in the sanctuary? Verse 18, he says, truly, you set them in slippery paces. So he comes into the sanctuary and he, re- he recognizes you need to have your eye on the end, how this stuff is all going to end. And he, he realizes one day the wicked will get theirs. That they face judgment. My daughter and I were having a discussion about a, a company that I use, and she was trying to tell me I shouldn't use it because their CEO is wicked. And he gets so much money, and he has all this money, and he doesn't, do, he doesn't hardly give any of it to charity. He doesn't, he doesn't help anybody. And, Dad, why do you support that business? And I, I said, as far as I know, this guy does not claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And in my mind, this world is all he has. And the Bible says he might as well enjoy it now. Because one day he will stand before God. He, he doesn't get it. And so, look, he looks at it, he says, I know what their end is. And did you hear in verse, in verse 24, when, when he has a changed heart, he says, you guide me with your counsel, and afterwards, what? You will receive me to glory. Oh, man. Can you hear what he, do you see how he has his mind on the end? Second, we, we have to keep the cost of sin in our mind. Romans 3.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. Like, we have to recognize what the cost of sin is. And as he walks into the sanctuary and he sees the sacrificial lambs, when he sees the blood on the altar, he remembers the cost of his sin. Listen, you and I need to recognize not just that Jesus died on the cross because he loved the world. We have to look at the cross and see that his blood was shed for me. We have to recognize that he died for my sins. It has to become personal. And so we have to keep God at the center of our thinking. And that's, that's where he changes his, his direction. At first, the prosperity of the wicked was his focus. Now God is his focus. And things begin to change. And so in verses 18 through 26, he talks about this lesson that he learned. And again, he he recognizes the destiny of the wicked. He sees where they're going to end up. And because he sees that, we go to who am I? And that who am I is he recognizes his sin. And look at it in verse 21. He says, when my soul was embittered, dangerous place to be. 
Okay, can we just stop for a second and recognize that? He sees what this line of thinking is doing to his soul. It's making him embittered, angry, resentful. And then it says, when I was pricked in heart. What does that mean? When I was convicted. When the Holy Spirit convicted me. You know, when we talked about this idea uh, last week of uh, forgive my sins or forgive my debt or transgressions, we looked at all three words. When, when I ask for that forgiveness, forgive me as I have forgiven uh, for, uh, forgave those who have sinned against me or transgressed against me. Listen, if you're not being convicted, if the Holy Spirit is not convicting you of sin, if you're not feeling that, that's a dangerous sign. There's a relationship break there. That spirit conviction, I know we don't like it when it comes, but we feel that because the spirit of God is pressing in on us. So he recognizes that. He recognizes his sin because he was convicted of sin. And then he, he goes through, and again, we don't have time to jump into all this in verses 23 and following, but who is God in this? God is present in verse 23. I'm, you, you hold my right hand. And even that phrase that right there, you hold my right hand, it's, it's one that David uses in many of his psalms. And as I was thinking through this, um, David would give psalms to the choir director for, the, for him to finish up, either put music to it or put you know, different things, just kind of finish this up for, for public use. And, and so... Here, he starts thinking of other psalms. He starts thinking of the promises of God. He starts thinking of of how God's word impacts him as he thinks of God's promises. And so God guides us, and God God strengthens us, and God saves us. And he says in here that God is his refuge. And then in verses 27 and 28, he kind of just sums things up. Those who are far from you shall perish, verse 27, verse 28, but as for me, it is good to be near God. So how do we pray for protection? Just kind of three things to be thinking of here. First of all, we believe in God's goodness. This, you know, we're going we're gonna to press into more of this in the fall, but, but the way that we view God impacts the way that we do ministry. The way that we view God impacts the way that we parent. And I have to to confess, as I look back at my own upbringing, even in the church, I think I I was more inclined to believe in God's judgment than God's mercy. And because of that, I didn't necessarily think of God as good, but somebody that I should constantly be afraid of. And so when we believe in God's goodness, it impacts how we do ministry. And second, when we trust in God's promises, when we, when we see that God is good, we start looking at all the promises, which is what pours out in verses 23 and following. 
Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. That's a promise. And afterwards, you will receive me in glory. How does he know? Because it's a promise. Whom am I heaven but you? There's nobody up there. That's what God's word says. And there's nothing on earth I desire besides you. This is my flesh and my heart. This is all based on trusting in God's promises. And when we do that, we flee from the world's wickedness with God's help. So this is the application. Again, the same kind of flow that we've had in the last few weeks is that we want to pray the Lord's Prayer and this week focusing on God's protection. And I think as a church, as you're, as you're reading through Scripture individually or in your small groups or whatever you're doing, lean into God's goodness. Um, I, I'm hoping this is just kind of wetting your appetite for this upcoming special series that we have in the fall. But it's amazing when you start looking for God's goodness, it's on every page of, script, page of Scripture. And then again, I, I just as we're living through this time, I, I would really encourage you I would really encourage you to practice the rhythms of discipleship because we're living in hard times. And so we've got to be in God's word. We need to be praying on a regular basis and meditating, fellowshipping and serving and giving. We've got to be exercising the disciplines or we will just start to slip away. We'll become embittered. And I, I'm just overwhelmed with, I, and we're all stuck in this, this, this place of, I mean, I'm afraid, I'm, I'm afraid both to turn the news on and not to turn the news on on a daily basis. I mean, I don't really want to see it, but so much is happening that I miss too much. But how much time am I spending on that versus how much time am I spending with God? And, and what begins to begin to shape me and move me in my attitudes? So we need to practice the rhythms of discipleship. Let's pray. Father God, we, we come to you. And our prayer individually, as a church, as families, is that your name would be lifted up. My prayer is that the name of Jesus would be lifted up in our church. Regardless of what's going on in the world around us and the chaos and the brokenness, I pray that when people look at Hillsborough First Baptist Church, that Jesus Christ, above everything else, would be lifted up. God, I pray that your kingdom would come. And God, I, I do pray as I look at the news and the things that are going on, I long for that day when you are on the throne and you rule over every inch of this world. But until then, God, I pray that your kingdom principles would come into our heart, that we would live the way as if your kingdom is today, and it is, and that it is come, that people would see the living of, out of the gospel in every aspect of our families' lives, of our individual lives, of our lives as a church. God, I pray that your will would be done. And we, we know about your sovereignty, but God, we, we know that it's your will that people come to Jesus Christ. And so we pray, God, that we would see lives changed. We know it's your will that we would grow closer to you in relationships. So God, we pray 
that we would see people lean into your promises and your goodness. God, we pray for your provisions. Individually, as families, as a church, God, we pray that you would keep us going. God, we pray for those provisions of those who are sick, that you would lift them up. God, we pray for the provisions of those who are struggling financially. God, we pray for provisions for those who are, who are depressed. God, we pray for forgiveness. As a church, God, we pray for forgiveness for our selfishness for our own kingdom building, for the way that we have fought against one another and not for the kingdom of God. And God, we pray that you would lead us, that you would guide us to be the light in the church that you want us to be on the corner of 2nd and Lincoln. God, we pray to our Father, that you would bless your children. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.